midnight interview with Mark DeWidziak and Richard Haddam. They finally meet again. This is Forrest Burgess with Astonishing Legends, and you're listening to the Shacks Loop Podcast. Hello and welcome to another edition of Shacks Loop. I promise we're going to get jump right in here. Uh, this is an episode from January of 2022. We had Mark, we had Rich in the same room talking, well, same virtual room, talking it up. Uh, we, we talk about a lot of things, talk about Twin Peaks, network television, a lot about network television, the ins and outs, network execs, how stuff's pitched. Mark has a great story about that. And we hear it from somebody who's in the industry now, Rich Adam, who is currently working on television, took the episodes for Titans, DC's Titans on HBO Max. You can check that out. They've already released a few episodes now, so you can go on HBO Max and find that. And, and Rich wrote an amazing first episode. Maybe next episode and part two of this, we'll, we'll get a little uh, conversation with him before that episode kicks into gear. But if not, you know, we'll talk about it down the road, I'm sure, because there's a lot of horror-esque elements to it. A lot of, uh, you know, even even some uh, some classic literature, maybe a little bit of Kolchak in there. And we talk about Kolchak today, talk about X-Files, talk about um, how Holbrook, Jeff Ross, and, and his personal relationship with Mark. There's a lot of good stuff there. Before we do get started, I do want to make a special shout out to a friend of the show, Scott Schaefer. Um, his son Noah passed away a while back, and uh, just I was keeping up with all that as, as things happened. And, you know, just thoughts, prayers go out to him. You know, any loss is hard, but especially a loss like that. So just want to remember... Uh, his son for this, and uh, I, I hope that this that our podcast at least brings some uh, some joy to everybody out there. That's all I really wanted to say on on that front. So Scott, just know that we think about you and your family. This is really one slice of a uh, three nearly three hour conversation, part two next week. So without further ado, we'll jump right in here. After my enlightening conversation with the beautiful Helen Surtees, I ran a check through tax records and business licenses. The Max Match dating service was almost brand spanking new. No one knew where it came from or what other branches it had. It seemed to me that such mysterious origins warranted what we in the press call the midnight interview. (laughs) Together again for the first time. Exactly. There we go. <laughs> Which I think I think this deserves uh, a special. This was the hardest intro I've ever gotten. Uh, but I, Robert, I haven't even told you about this. I got a special intro here, uh, just for them two meeting. So, and, and, and I right. think, that, yeah. So here's the special intro. That is my two year old. Uh, he, I got, I had to work hard to get him to say that. Uh, and he says, Colshack understand. Yeah, I understood Kolchak's loop. He says loot. He very clearly says Kolchak's uh, loop. Brad, that doesn't sound like professional. No, it, it doesn't. It doesn't. It, it was that hard. Fired. So, maybe maybe you can recast adults. it. You know? Recast it. Recast it. You know, just have auditions. You know, do you want to be my son? <laughs> <laughs> just hold on. We're getting repeats. Oh, Contact on you. Uh, man, so how y'all been? Have y'all been watching? So here's how I like to start the episode, especially in March. Y'all watched anything good lately? Any, anything TV y'all are watching? No, no. And, and it's not because I'm not watching good TV. I'm not watching TV at all. During the 43 years that I, during my 43 years as a TV critic, I used to interview people who worked on different shows. And and, and Rich will know, will know what, when, as soon as I say this, he'll, 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 he'll know exactly what I'm talking about. And I always used to ask them that question, like, what are you watching? And they always said the same thing. 
I'm working in television. I'm too busy to watch television. I don't yeah. watch anything. They could never tell you, you know, at the height, you know, you, this it's such a uh, all encompassing job and, and job. So right now I've been working on the Poe biography and I'm doing rewrites on it right now. I'm oh, doing really? revisions. And this has been such an all consuming thing that I, I have not watched hardly anything as far as I, my television time is, 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 is minimal. You know, so and when I am watching something, I'm watching something probably on DVD. I'm watching probably an old for relaxation. I'm kicking back and watching an old Kolchak episode or something, you know, so um, I'm not, you know, so I'm really out of the loop. People ask me about succession and other shows and I'll catch up with it later. So, I mean, I I, I don't mean to dodge the question, but, you know, the truth, the truth. And I'm just I'm not really watching very much right now. You're, You're not dodging it. We asked you that last time. And did I give you the right so, same answer? Am I, am I, am I pretty much. give you pretty much? I, I want to be consistent about my lying here. Am I? It was you, uh, no, no, very, very much so. Very okay. much. So. The last answer took about twenty-five minutes, but you <laughs> well, know, yeah, you of course, sit down. So <laughs> that's a short this answer. Is pretty for me. awesome, <laughs> Rich. What, what you, about you? Are, Watching are anything? Recording now? I'm not. Yeah, we're talking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're 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 on a quick, yeah, quick roll, and we're recording. Please, God, tell me. I don't want you to miss out on. A single word of this. Um, you know, I, well, I am watching a couple of things, but mostly, you know, I'm watching things that are at at minimum 40 years old. You know, okay. my wife and I are watching Scarecrow and Mrs. King, Remington Steel. Oh, really? This is in preparation for her upcoming podcast, Ladies of the 80s. Oh, it's all about feminist sweet. television in the 80s and what was considered feminist television because a lot of these shows had you know moonlighting they had these sort of feminist um uh premises but but looked at 40 years on 35 years on it's a very specific kind of feminism and and then the question is well how many women were writing those shows how many women were directing those shows and producing those shows and so she's preparing that podcast so we're watching a lot of that stuff i'm watching columbo because I've never seen Columbo until a month ago. What? I had the, what? I had the, I had the good fortune of getting COVID over Christmas. Uh, <laughs> I was, look, I'm double vaxxed. I'm boosted. Oh, so yeah. When I got COVID, it was like a mild cold and I was sitting in bed, but I had to quarantine. So it's like, oh, sorry, honey. It's December 20th. I can't see you until New Year's Eve. So I have to lock myself away in our master bedroom suite and uh, you know what? I've been getting by with a lot of nods, but I've never seen a single minute of Columbo. So I started wow. watching Columbo for the first time in my life. Wow. You know, your friend uh, and uh, from the Shack tapes, we did an interview with them. And me and Chris have been talking a lot here recently after like we stayed and we talked about three hours afterwards, which brings up a podcast I've been listening to and I'll get to in a little bit. But there's he started their cult their Columbo podcast. Um, so is it, is it Chris and Mike, uh, Mike, Mike or, or just or just Chris that's doing the Columbo podcast? It's both of them. Is it? Oh, Mark, are you already? Oh, oh Mark, I assume you you were dialed. No, no, that, I listened Mark. to the first one. They they just posted the link to the, and and a yeah, friend. I think the, the, the guy who just wrote the, the most recent book on Columbo, David Koenig. Uh, they yeah, had yeah. him on, and I wanted to I wanted to listen to what uh, David had to say. Oh, so, okay. That's- so rich though, from, from a, from a guy, your age coming, coming from a guy, your age, did you not watch any of the McMillan and, and wife and 
And, you know, those ones that were all along with. Uh, no, I didn't. Hospital. I wasn't really watching. I mean, Kolshak, in a way, was one of the few hour-long shows I watched besides like oh. Little House on the Prairie you know, uh, and, and those, and those, the, the kind of really straight crime shows of at the time I thought Columbo and then Columbo sort of is a pretty straight crime show. I didn't start the first really hour long show that appealed to me was the Rockford files because it was mm. funny too. And I'm like, yeah. Oh, so this isn't like for grownups. Like I'm allowed to watch this too. Cause there's like this comedy element. Um, and, and Columbo, I, I, no one really talked about it literally until the last five years. And and then I started really hearing people say, well, Columbo was one of the best, you know, Rockford and Columbo, like they would get talked about in the same breath. So mm-hmm. then it was like, oh, I better. And by then I knew Peter Falk better. So I'm like, I, I, I better go check it out. And I didn't, and I didn't. And people, and then people started writing books about Columbo. <laughs> and I'm like, damn, Somebody I really right got to go into this. So I know. So, uh, so I finally, plus I love Levinson and Link because one of my favorite movies is Roller Coaster. Mm. <laughs> show you what uh. I've got on my wall here. Whoa. That's a, a title page to the Roller Coaster script signed oh. by uh, William Link, Timothy Bottoms, George Siegel, and Lalo Schifrin, who did the music. Um, for some reason, I'm obsessed with the movie Roller Coaster, and I managed to get that signed by those people. I believe, except for Timothy Bottoms, they have all passed away. Oh, man. I've something I, w- I was hoping Rich would have seen. Hey, Peacemaker has been uh, crazy, nuts. I don't know if you've heard anything about it. But uh, yeah, I, I haven't started watching it yet, but I've heard nuts. From the intro, the intro has to be the greatest oh, intro in television history. Uh, I'll go ahead and say that right now. There, no intro anybody brings up can fully choreographed. It's amazing. What I've been, if, if you can't tell from my background, I've been watching Twin Peaks. I, I love Twin Peaks, and I had never seen The Return, and so I started the. Re- so I, I've I've started off reading books. So I, I started with a recommendation for Sir from Sir Richard Haddam. Uh, How lucky! I had no idea. I had no idea going in what that book was about. And I went into that book and that, that blew my mind. What this, what happened over the course of that book? Love the book though. What else did I read? I just started Dune recently. I've never read Dune and I've never seen David Lynch's adaptations. Dune separates the world. I, I there are, especially the book, the book you either, you either love it like it's your new Bible or you don't get it. It's one or the other. I, I there are very few people who are middle grounders on Dune. Yeah. So I'd never seen David Lynch's version, so I thought I'll read the book first. God, it's a huge, uh, colossal book. What else? I read the Secret History of Twin Peaks, and I read a, a biography on the Doors guitarist Robbie Krieger. That's what I my my New Year and sort of holidays have been filled with. And I've been listening to a podcast, uh, Ranking on Bass. Oh, Dude, you must have better things to do with your time. No, which is a a podcast with uh, Richard Haddam, Chris, and Mike, and and they talk about all the old uh, Christmas specials done by Rankin Bass. So, oh, and then and then, and then beyond, I when I agreed to do that podcast, I thought we'd do two episodes. <laughs> We've been doing it for a year. Rankin and Bass did so many things, and they just keep every week. We do well, not every week, but every time we do one, they're like. All right, now, uh, do you want to do this next thing they've got? Is this live action thing, you know, with Carl Weathers about the Bermuda Triangle? And I'm like, <laughs> what are you talking? About? There's, there's still more. 
we've been doing it for a year and it, it, it shows no signs of stopping. I know that was the funniest thing. Cause I talked to Chris about it and he's like, yeah, I think this was Rich's idea to start out, uh, out with, but now I think he's seeing this thing go off the rails and he's not too sure anymore. <laughs> so, uh, but it's, it's great. I, I love it. I, I'm like four or five episodes in right now, but I'm going to turn this over to Mark. Mark, do you have anything to say about twin peaks? I'm sure you've, I mean, when I brought up tales from the crypt that one time you said, Oh, I went to the opening party and all that. Do you have any, any links to twin peaks or Rankin and bass Any anything there to twin Peaks? Yeah, I was on the beat when, when twin peaks started and you knew it was like nothing else had ever been done before on television. And it looked like a whole lot of things built to twin peaks. You could take almost every speculative television that had been done before. And it just felt like everything led to what Mark Frost and David Lynch did in Twin Peaks when that showed up. It was special. It was really, really special. And I meant that visually. I meant that, um, you know, from a story standpoint, just from the, the, the whole feel of it, it felt like it drew from, you know, the Twilight Zone, from The Prisoner, from Coal Shack, uh, yeah. you, you name it. Anything that had been done was sort of in the DNA of what Twin Peaks was. So, um, you know... Uh, 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 Twin Peaks was the smartest, dumbest show ever put on network television. And I'll, say, I'll, I'll explain that. It was really, really, you know, obviously smart television and from a quality standpoint. And it was a critic's darling. And, the, you know, the critics embraced it right away. The thing you have to remember about Twin Peaks is that it started at midseason. A lot of people forget that that show actually got its commitment early and they had the great good fortune of not going on at the beginning of the tv season that year so they came on at mid-season and they only had to do a half season and they had been thinking about it for a year and a half so they had like a year and a half to make those first 13 and they were so good that first 13 is really really good exceptional television now when i say dumb this is what i mean by that we were in the era of the VCR. The VCR had come come along, but it, we hadn't quite gotten full into time shifting or things like that yet. And we didn't have like the full network universe or the 500 channel universe. The problem with Twin Peaks was it was so good and so dense that if you missed a week, you missed an eternity, which meant, and if you missed two weeks, forget it. Just, just forget it. And if you hadn't taped it or you didn't have any way to make up your loss, you were lost. And therefore, the ratings were going down each week. It was the only show that was almost designed so the ratings would go down. And that's stupid. That's stupid network programming television, but only because it was so smart, but only so because it was so incredibly smart. And then when the unthinkable happened. They got a second season. And as soon as they got a second season, guess what? They had to do 22 and they had to plan it all over a summer. Now, Rich knows how television works and knows the insanity of this, that all of a sudden you had a year and a half to do third to half season. Now you've got weeks to plan out 22 episodes. And the thing I love the most about that second season, which I liked, by the way, I think the second oh, season wow. got unfairly lambasted. Fans started to say stupid shit like, you know what? It feels like they're making it up every week. Yeah, that's what television does. Asshole. That's what they do. They make it up every week. That's that's the job, you know. Damn. And so, you know, 
Twin Peaks became another series. They became human, basically, in the second season. And people faulted them for it, you know, and 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 plus the ratings were going down. They were like almost designed to go down. So, you know, but I love Twin Peaks. I love Twin Peaks. They also had, I'll always go back to press events, which they had one of the great press events in the history of the, the TV Critics Tour, which was very simple. Breakfast. They, at the Century Plaza Hotel, the Century Plaza used to have two sunken ballrooms on either side of the courtyard. One was the Pacific Palisades room. And in one of the rooms, they just rented out the entire room and put out log tables, which were stacked with donuts. Everywhere you looked, there were donuts and hot coffee. And the whole entire cast was just milling around and did one-on-one interviews with everybody for as long as anybody wanted to stay. So it was perfect. You know, all you needed, it was one of the cheapest press events you ever could imagine because all you needed was picnic tables, donuts, and coffee. And it so suited what the show was. It was perfect. So, Mark, I have a question. Mm-hmm. Um, um, first of all, I'm a little bit hazy on the year that it premiered. What 89, I think. I'm pretty 89. sure 89, okay. Rich. So, which is pretty early for 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 more serialized, non-episodic, because because that didn't like it wasn't really until sort of like feels like Hill Street Blues or something that that it, it, they sort of or maybe Wise Guy, which maybe even been later, that it was like okay, we're going to experiment with serialization outside of a Falcon Crest Dallas you know, nighttime soap opera kind of thing. Why did they take this chance? Was it purely on the on on the reputation of David Lynch? I, I think it was. And the fact that um, there was a brief period of time, network, network executives as a whole are not very bright people. They're not only not very bright people, they're people with very little true knowledge of their own industry. Uh, they almost have no institutional memory and, and they don't last long. Network executives as a whole do not last long. They're, the life expectancy is not big, especially on the entertainment president, the top job. But for a brief period of time in the late 80s and early 90s, ABC was being run by a fellow by the name of Brandon Stoddard. And Brandon Stoddard had pretty much overseen the TV and miniseries aspects of ABC. So he was really responsible for some of the greatest of quality television that showed up on ABC before he got the job. He was a true renaissance man, and he had a real understanding of the industry. And it was one of the rare times when you had a real guy who really cared about quality in charge of a network. At the same time that Brandon Stoddard was running ABC, Brandon Tartikoff was running NBC. The joke was, you know, you had to have Brandon as a name to run a network. Brandon Stoddard was one of the great unsung heroes of network television. He never liked I've the spotlight on him. I've never heard this guy's name. Yeah. And, and he never liked the spotlight name. on him. Brandon Stoddard is also the reason I wrote the Night Stalker book in a lot of ways. Oh, wow. You want to talk about an unsung hero in all of this. When I was writing the, the Night Stalker book and I had gotten the okay from Darren and Richard Matheson and Jeff Rice and Dan Curtis, they had all said, yes, we will support the research. This was back in the day when you could literally pick up the phone and get the network executives on the phone. Imagine doing that now. Imagine trying to get the head of CBS on the phone. But I literally could dial Brandon Stoddard's office and say, you know, it's Mark Dewitziak at the from the Akron Beacon Journal. Does he have a couple minutes? 
You know, well, I'll see. Oh, yeah, he'll talk to you. That's what it was like back then. And Brandon was the one who gave the go. I told him, I said, I want to, want to do a book on the Night Stalker. And he said, oh, I love that. He said, you, we got our total support. We're throwing up every, uh, everything's open to you. And we'll get anybody to talk to you. Anybody who wants to talk to you, we'll, we'll get to Brandon just, can you imagine that happening today? Can you imagine just getting the, even those people on the phone? You know, that's no, what, what a great guy this yeah. guy was, you know. Wow. Funny. You know, Brandon so, Stoddard figured out how to do Roots, and he figured out how to program Roots. Okay. You know? So he was behind Roots, because so, he was doing the TV. He was one of the executives. Roots. He was one of them, yeah. David Wolper obviously gets the, you know, uh, the credit from a production yeah, standpoint. From producer yeah. Do you guys think the episodic format was birthed out of the long miniseries like Roots? Is that even a possibility? Seri- serialized storytelling or... Or whatever you call it. Yeah, serialized. It was, I, 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 let, let me jump in and Mark, tell me if you agree. It, the, television back in those days, 70s and the 80s and into the 90s a little bit, was really a network-driven show based on day and date viewing of a particular episode. This was before computers were... Or, or cable were were presenting you know competition on any level so tv was the thing you did in the evenings when you weren't doing something else back in the 70s and 80s they used to say that the average person watched their favorite show every third episode and the networks knew this now to me that's crazy because as a kid I, I was obsessed and i wanted to watch every episode of every show that i loved but they were like, hey, people have PTA meetings and they've got their bowling. They've got other things to do and they've they got a date. They've got There's other things going on in people's lives. So their favorite show, they check in. So you can't have these stories. And they didn't. I mean, they would, you know, using the Rockford Files as an example, they'd have an episode in the third season where a guest star would play a woman that Rockford had almost married and had been engaged to for years. You'd never heard of this woman. She'd nothing. No one had ever mentioned her. She would be in that episode. There'd be a case involving her. The case would conclude and you'd never hear about her again. That's TV just isn't made that way anymore. Yeah. Um, right. And, and, right. and so I don't know if it was the I don't know if it was a a creative leap or the or or sort of the rise of cable or or other things, but at a certain point, networks, I think, started to go. Well, now wait a second, though. If we're serialized, doesn't that sort of force people to watch more episodes? I mean, if they really get involved, won't their dedication to the show? sort of demand that they watch more of those episodes. And that I think they began taking that chance. Does that make sense, Mark? It does. It does. And, you know, the other way that, that things change at the same time was that the, the model for making money in TV was always also, they always aim for syndication. You know, the magic, get five years, get enough episodes, and then syndicate. The whole idea was that then people would be watching things out of sequence. So the episodes themselves had to be self-contained. Every self-contained, you know, uh, Matt Dillon will solve the, the 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 case of the week in Dodge City by the end of the hour, and so the idea of continuing stories and and there, another thing this was the idea of season finales show finales. That's a very modern conceit in television because back then they thought if you ended uh, definitively ended it would end the story for people and they wouldn't want to watch it in syndication. 
So they would keep it always open-ended. Now, some shows had to have, like, The Fugitive had to have an ending. You know, eventually he had to get the one-armed man. But most shows, they would not let them do endings. They not let the, they said, no, that's bad. Because, you know, once this thing goes into, if they thought there was an end, they won't invest in the, the characters all over again. I think... So, um... I think MASH was one of the first shows that really had a very highly publicized and Mary Tyler Moore both had big final episodes. Yeah. Once you get into the seventies, that's when the, 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 the shows and really it was the late set because it was the shows that started in the seventies and then sort of ended their, their runs in the late seventies and early eighties. This is the era of finales. When you start getting shows like St. Elsewhere and, uh, and you know, it's such a said, no, we're going to wrap it up. We're going to put a, a button on this. But, you know, th that's something which is a fairly modern in the history of television. But I really, when you talk about Twin Peaks, you know, getting it back to Twin Peaks for a second, everybody always said that Twin Peaks was ahead of its time. And they're, they're always talking about character, you know, uh, they're talking about cinematography. They're talking about, you know, the, the way the show was designed. It's all true. It was so far ahead of its time it, it, that it was really meant for streaming. You know, if you had done Twin Peaks, in a streaming world, it would be perfect. You know, nobody would bat an eye about what they were doing. And it wouldn't seem so you could say, oh, well, we're only going to do this many episodes and this is all we think we can do. And then we'll come back maybe two years from now. We'll do, you know, five more episodes. It really would have been it, it, it very influential on a lot of shows that are done today, you know, from from standpoint. Twin Peaks had an enormous influence on movies and television. As you go into the 90s, you see a whole lot of movies and television that are influenced by what Twin Peaks did. Yeah, and, and Twin I could, Peaks in itself was influenced by everything that went before it. Yeah, you and know? I could be wrong on this, but I'm pretty sure that David Lynch never wanted to reveal who the killer was, and the network made him do it halfway through the second season. Uh, and then that sort of, then after that, a lot, a lot of times, I mean, I love the second season as well, but a lot of times after the network sort of made him reveal it, and then they had the last half of the of the second season where it sort of all the real shenanigans happened where people say, oh, this is terrible, you know. I think that was some of it too, that the network sort of forced their hand on it. But, you know, one of the, the, the great, uh, also for me, you know, the, the, as a journalist during the time that Twin Peaks was on the air, there was one actor on the show. I worked all well, during the time that Twin Peaks was on originally. I was the TV critic at the Akron Beacon Journal. Okay. Mm -hmm. One of the actors on the show was from Akron. So from the start, I knew about the show. I knew all about the inside of the show. And I had like a mole inside the show. The actor was Ray Wise. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's right. So I knew I had been, been interviewing Ray all the way through. So by the time the reveal came, it was front page news in the Akron Beacon Journal because the man who killed Laura Palmer was from Akron, Ohio. <laughs> so we were like, oh, we got it. You know, this is this is ours. You know, we were never noticed more proud than when, you know, Jeffrey Dahmer did his first killing here. You know, it was like, well, you know, this is <laughs> this is our town, you know? Yeah. So uh, I do yeah. remember like the absolute sense of electricity that came through me when I got the shot of Leland slash Bob there with it, with that reveal. But it, like Bradley though, like thereafter, it was kind of like, Oh, so man, we got a lot of time to spend on, you know, that we've revealed this guy and granted, I think it was all still done really well. I mean, I, I really liked the show. Not to completely direct away from that conversation, but I did want to get in that I have seen uh, Station Eleven recently uh, that's on HBO. I was getting to the end of it, and I started letting myself read a little bit, and I saw 
no no second season for Station Eleven, and doesn't look like HBO is going to do it, and all this kind of stuff. And I hadn't finished it yet. And then I finished the first season. I won't give away a whole bunch, but I finished the first season. But I could actually absolutely tell you didn't really need a second season. So talking about putting a button on it, they left it open-ended enough that you could carry this on. But uh, a very unique way, I think, of doing this post, you know, apocalyptic and, and you know, written what in 2000, or at least the book published in 2015, I think. And, uh, you know, very, it's pandemic related and, and all this type of stuff. So a very unique way of looking at it. And I, I love the, the central group that they have that presents it after 20 years later and that kind of stuff. So if you guys haven't seen it, I would highly, highly recommend that. And then Rich, I wanted to tell you, there is a professor at Georgia Tech who I have been trying to get to grant me an interview with her. Uh, her name is Lisa, and I think she pronounces her last na- her last name Yazik, Y A S Z E K. She specializes in women's sci-fi, and she specializes in a lot of the stuff you just said your wife wants to do with her podcast, oh, which um, is did women write these episodes? What was the central focus on these episodes? Those types of things, and that's really she has written more. I think at least two books on that particular subject. Even though it's sci-fi, though, she has this whole classes that she has taught just on this subject. And well, I think great. she probably knows a little bit about the whole 80s because she's she's right around, I think, uh, early 50s, something like that. Oh, so, oh, yeah, she, in other she'd words, be right in that area. Yeah, yeah. That, that's really cool. You know, I, it's it's funny because when I think about, you know, you talk about Station Eleven not having a second season, maybe not needing a second season. We're in an era now where it's almost the opposite, where shows are designed in such a way that that it feels like they do have a natural conclusion. Like their their premises are are more sort of story. I'll give you an example: only murders in the building. Oh man, love it, love it. A lot of people love that show, and and obviously love Martin Short and Steve Martin, but you know so what what is a second season of that <laughs> a, yeah. a, another murder in the building i mean at a certain point it turns back into network television where it's just like well you love watching this actor so much you'll watch them do anything and and so then then suddenly the reality of the conceit begins to fall away mm-hmm. and and that's what we had in, in the era of Shack. You you loved Darren McAvin and you loved that character. The reality of the situation he was in was fairly porous. There wasn't a lot of demand that it be anything more because at the time there wasn't anything more. So you didn't you spend a lot of time questioning, well, wait a second, why is this always happening to him? Something else that they did on the show, which people don't really talk about, is that <clears throat> the time frames were always out of control. Like, like it didn't follow the linear year. One episode, one week would be the hottest day in Chicago. Then the next week it was Christmas. And what it was doing was subtly telling you that Kolshak covers hundreds of stories in his career. We're only showing you the supernatural ones, but there's many, many other things he's doing that in all of the months we're not covering right now that weren't supernatural that that had to be part of the conceit didn't it 
Well, you might be giving them credit for too much thinking, Rich. (laughs) (laughs) These were not, you know, as I've I've stressed before, almost none none of the people who worked on on Kolchak was a a horror guy. None of them had worked on that kind of a show before. You know, once you get past the two movies, you know, where the pedigree is very high because Richard Matheson is writing it, you're, you're getting into people who were assigned to the lowest ranked show on the universe a lot at that point it was the poor stepchild and you know so they were they created their own kind of funky world with this you know and it was a world which drew on a whole lot of in some ways it drew more on the sitcom than it drew on the classic car conceits uh it played like at a certain point more like that certainly the family of characters was designed more as a sitcom uh than it was a classic car but, you know, they didn't give any thought. And as you say, because television didn't back then to there being a grander mythology, you know, all the shows that Kolchak influences later on. It would have been unthinkable to have done, you know, Buffy or Grimm or show your your uh, or Supernatural without a mythology in the background, without an explanation. of Why is this always happening to the Winchester brothers every week? Well, there's got to be a reason for this and people aren't going to buy it. But back then it didn't, bo- you know, the whole idea was, well, he's bumping into this every week, <laughs> you know, and, and again, they didn't think about it. They didn't think it out. You know, there was no Bible on the show that that established that or had any reason yeah. for that. You know, either it's 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 geography like, you know, Twin Peaks is one of these great places that explains itself. Anything can happen in Twin Peaks because it's Twin Peaks. It's like Collinsport on Dark Shadows. You know, um, the or, geography. Or Sunnyvale. Right, right. Or, it's, or a, it's a hell mouth. The, right, exactly. It's a hell mouth. Yeah, yeah. You know, you know they're, they're, it has its, it's either geography or the person itself that's attracting it. You know, well, what was it with Cole? Well, they never said. They never said they never because they never really gave it any thought. Because, you know, the very first story was based on the idea that this was the most unlikely of people for this to happen to. And therefore, the story of a vampire in Las Vegas would be believable if they played it off of that kind of character. And then you start repeating it every week. And they never got to the point, which would be the very first thing you would do if you're doing the show today, which would be, why is Fox Mulder always dealing with these things? You know, well, let's give him a reason. His job is to investigate those things, you know, and he's, those things are drawn to him for some mystical reason, which we will explain later on. You know, so now I, it's it's a it's a it's a perfectly legitimate talking point with Kolshak because they really never did figure it out. You know, uh, which is why I, I want to get back to one, one second before we get to before I forget this. I, I have a question for you, Rich, which is what did you think of Columbo? You never said. Oh, <laughs> I really enjoyed um, the very first one with Gene Barry because because I, I feel that Peter Falk's performance was at its most grounded. Now I've only seen maybe five episodes. I'm watching them in order. Um, but it's it's the most grounded there. And then in the second one, it's a little he's he's leaning into the eccentricity a little more. And and really even by episodes three and four, I'm like, oh, he's really embracing the eccentricity, which is fine. And I'm enjoying because it's Peter Falk. But I'm like, oh, this this arc of him sort of embracing that, it didn't take years. It took a handful of episodes. 
before. Now I'm curious because I know that it gets even more. And and he becomes even like the eccentricity does not ever step backward. It only goes forward. So I'm curious about his performance. I'll say one other thing. <clears throat> so far in the episodes that I've seen, they they haven't really depended upon a super level of Sherlock Holmes sort of oh my God, only Columbo could have figured this out. In the first couple episodes, it's just, I'm going to find the accomplice who worked with this person and I'm going to break them down. In fact, there's a really weird sort of uncharacteristic scene in the very first Columbo where he, you know what I'm talking about. He sort of like aggressively assaults verbally the woman who is the girlfriend, I guess, of Gene Barry. Who, who is involved in the murder. And, you know, with Gene Barry, he's like, oh, one more thing. And with this woman, he's like, you did this and I'm going to get you and I'm going to hound you every day of your life until you admit what you did. And it's like, it's, it's disturbing. And it was unexpected because I, I was like, oh, I didn't think that was kind of what this show was about. I thought he was the one who was like, I see what no one else can see. But the first handful, he's really just reeling in the accomplice and getting them to assist in the takedown of the major guest star criminal. That's my point of view from watching four, maybe five of them so far. Well, it's, you know, and, and and he's even more insidious than that in that scene, because he says to her, you're the weak link and I'm going to get, I'm going to get him. And and you're the way I'm going to get, because I'm going to break you. You, know, you can't keep it yeah. up. You know, it's it. No, it's it's definitely a uh, a very uncolumbo like move later on. You know, but yeah, uh, yeah you know, most it's interesting because most fans, although they like because prescription murder, the, the very first one is the headwaters. Oh, right. So they admire it, you know, and it's Levinson and Link, you know, at at, at in some ways the some of their finest. Uh, most people don't. That's one of their least favorites because he is very uncolumbo like to them. Because later on, he becomes Peter made the character more and more like himself, like people do. Yeah. And he's only in he doesn't show up till 45 minutes in. Like they corrected that immediately. Like in the second one, he shows up 15 minutes in. And after that, even sooner. But in that first one, he does not appear on screen for 45 minutes. And even then, he's he's sort of a side character. I mean, it's 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 weird how little. He was meant screen to be. time, minute by minute. Yeah, yeah. He was meant to be because they they had done it as a screen as a, as a stage play. They actually did it as a teleplay first uh, for the Chevy Mystery Theater in the late sixties, was it? Nineteen sixty. Yeah, they, and it was uh, Richard Denning played the killer, and a character actor named Burke Fried played Columbo. Burke Fried didn't even remember doing it. Years later, Bill Link ran into him and said, <laughs> "You were the first guy to play Columbo." He said, "I was." You know, it's, it's completely. But then they they turned that into a stage play and uh, Joseph Cotton played the killer. Agnes Moorhead played his wife who he kills and Thomas Mitchell, who was in um, it's a wonderful life. His uncle Billy is a uh, Scarlett O'Hara's father in gone with the wind. Great character actor, very old. He was on his end. He played Columbo. And cause they saw him as sort of an older brusque Irish face. Cause they thought it would be fun to have an Irish faced actor playing an Italian guy with an Italian name. You know, it would, that would be idiosyncratic. So they got Thomas Mitchell to play it. 
but they believe that Joseph Cotton was the lead in, in it. And something happened while they were going from city to city with this. They Every night when the actors took their bows, Thomas Mitchell would come out to take his bows and the crowd went nuts. And then Joseph Cotton came out to take his bow and it went down. And it's like Levinson and Link just <laughs> looking at each other and said, what idiots, the cop is the main character. <laughs> Not the killer, you know. We thought that the killer was the main character. It took the audience to tell them, no, no, the cop's the main character. So, you know, and then Peter was the one who convinced them to let him play. They wanted, you know, show business legend says they wanted Bing Crosby to play Columbo when they were doing prescription murder, which was true because they had an Irish faced older actor in mind. It was not so odd if you think that Thomas Mitchell had played it. No, not odd at all. And and Bing Crosby is very low key. Right. You, right. You he famously said of... he thought it would get in the way of his golf game. So he turned it down. Mm. And they went to Lee J. Cobb because then they thought, well, let's get a, a sort of a brusque actor to play it, you know, and Cobb turned it down. And in the meantime, the one of the people at Universal had slipped Peter the script. And Peter had read the script and said, I'd kill to play that cop. You know, so he he lobbied for it he lobbied and convinced them that he would have the proper take on it to, to play it so mm. so I, I was just interested in how, on how you're responding because again you know that's you know another show obviously near and dear to my heart so well um, oh for sure and and especially in the first one i mean if you just had to have a time capsule of what la in the 70s looked like for a particular socioeconomic class it's gorgeous that first, that opening scene at the party, the black and white uh, decor, I'm just looking at that going, oh my God, the other scenes with the, the paneling and just the colors. I mean, it's it's a beautifully done show. It, you know, it's interesting to watch Columbo in, you know, regard to Kolshak because they're, you know, two shows I've written books about. But if you, it's interesting because Columbo, if you look at the craftsmanship involved, it's the height of the art at Universal at the time. You know, Russ Meddy, who had done lighting for Hitchcock and Orson Welles, was the lighting director on Columbo. You know, they had William, uh, Billy Goldenberg and Gil Millay and, and Dick Benedictus and all these great people doing the musical scores for Columbo. And you look at Kolchak and nobody was working on Kolchak. <laughs> <laughs> Just Gil Millay. Yes. It, well, uh, the Gil Millay was working on it and he reused music he already done. <laughs> yeah, that was really the, the theme was actually the stuff he done for the quester tapes so I, he, I saw that the other day in the group yeah i had never it. even heard it and then one of the coal shack uh the coal shack sites on facebook i heard that like you you hear it clear as day the the do 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 and and and, and, gil, and gil's the fan because and gil doesn't need it because gil was one of the great composers of uh, 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 working in television but the reason for that was gil had five minutes to come up with the theme Really? Literally, they were, he had been given the assignment. He thought he had, would have a couple of weeks to come up with a theme music for, for Kolshak. Darren drives up in a golf cart and says, uh, hey, youngster, we're working together on, on this show. Isn't that great? And Gil said, yeah, that's wonderful. And he said, well, you know, you've got to come up with a, with a theme. And he said, well, I'm going to work on it. And he said, well, work on it fast. We're shooting the opening credits in two minutes. <laughs> <laughs> so. Malay goes to the, the studio library and he pulls a few seconds of the music that he'd used for Quester tapes. 
and he recycled it and he made that the theme to Nightstar. So, oh my God, he arrived. I knew there was a connection, but I, I didn't yeah. realize it was like literally he had five. Oh, minutes. yeah, he arrives, he comes back, and they actually shoot the opening credits. <laughs> they play does, like, does the, he like whistle it or play it over the phone or something like that. Yeah, Mark? he gets he well, he, he brought it, and he, you know, they, they came up with the whole idea of the whistle at that point, you okay. know, for and they that's why they had Darren mimic the whistle as he as he walks in. If you watch the opening credits carefully, Darren's whistling. You know, as he as he enters, so it was well, supposed to match the, up with the music. the The opening credits actually is is some of the most beautiful cinematography in the show. Oh, and there's great. moments, there's moments like in various episodes. There's certain shots or certain scenes where I'm like, "Wow, this is if they had the time, and if that had been a a a front of mind goal." That we want to establish a, a a a you know a noir look or whatever, they could have really done it. I'm sure they didn't have the time or the interest, but there's moments here and there in Spanish Moss Murders, and and a few of the others where I'm like, wow, there's wow, that's beautiful. Yeah, no, I agree. And and you know, we were talking before that television back then was so much was a character driven medium. The whole idea was that you would forgive a lot if you like the character if you love the character you would forgive a bad week you would forgive a bad episode you wouldn't say well i'm done this thing has jumped the shark you know which is a ridiculous expression by the way but you would forgive an awful lot if you were in love with the character and you know and and the great thing about every night stalker every night stalker is going to give you a moment with darren in that seersucker suit that's just going to light up the screen for a couple of minutes well, yeah, between he and uh, him and Simon Oakland. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, I mean, you just and and everybody says it, but it's like, God, wh- how far away if they'd been given a few more? How far away were we from an episode where Simon Oakland, where, where Vincenzo is with him, is, is breaking Has a story to go into the him. field? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> you know, and, and just and just experiences just enough. But of course, that would indicate you know, then the premise of the show changes a little bit because the premise of the original show was nobody believes him. Nobody, like literally nobody. Like there's not a friend at the INS. There's not a guy down at the morgue. There's not a girlfriend. There's no one believes him. And that that was, yeah. I guess that was kind of, you know, written in stone. They, they would have had to molder and scully their way out of that one. I mean, you know, one of them would experience it still right there with the other, but then, you know, Scully would never, well, ne- never really still fully say that this is what I saw and that type of thing. The, if they did that, the Mulder, the Mulder Scully thing to me, it's like, it's like Kolshak was Mulder and Scully. It never mm-hmm. came down to belief. He saw it, it happened. I'm just trying to report it and maybe get some evidence of it. But I'm not. I'm not being challenged. He was. His philosophy was never challenged, other than, well, I didn't think vampires existed, but clearly they do because that is one. So, mm-hmm. we, we, the, the, his journey is from A to B. Now it's just a matter of other people accepting reality that he has seen. There's never this mm-hmm. question of, well, philosophically, I believe science explains things. Well, I'm a believer because my sister was taken, and it's a. And by the way, Scully's. You know the the whole Mulder Scully. 
poor Scully by episode three, she'd seen enough. She was already on board with Mulder. She's like, look, I'm still, I will ask some other questions, but I'm no longer going to say, I don't believe in any of this stuff. And you're an idiot. I mean, they, they turned her pretty quick, you know, yeah. which was probably good because really who wants to play that character? Because mm-hmm. right, the right. audience is being told it's real. So what you don't want is a character within the show not being on board with the premise of the show if they're the second lead. Yeah, well, they started you know doing experiments on her and and uh, abducting her and whatever else. So she kind of well, had no choice but to think like, oh, what the heck? Spoilers. Uh, uh, no, yeah, yeah, sure. <laughs> How, 20 years since that show's been on. Richmond, you're talking about that opening sequence and the cinematography for that and the music and how everything combines. Uh, yeah, I have always thought that is just the the top of the show <laughs> right there. Maybe sewing the zombie lips. You know, maybe that was next in line <laughs> yes. for, you know, being what what is the best or Miss Emily, you know, with, you know, being revealed as the monster that Carl has to kill. You know, the, yeah. those those few scenes there. But I, I think what it, it reminds me of is I was a big Wild Wild West fan. And when oh, you the Will have, Smith movie, right? Yeah, sure. Nope. So, <laughs> so when that would finish with Robert Conrad in those, in those scenes that they would do, where was, they would sort of like change the picture to make it into a painting. And I felt like that was similar to that. The Avengers with Steed and Mrs. Peel. That also is another one. And I don't know if you remember much of that, Rich or Mark, if you remember it. But one of my that, favorite shows that, of all time. Are you kidding? Yeah, that, oh. that, that had such a stylistic <laughs> feel to it. Like when the Wild Wild West got the weirdest um, with the little guy and, and the yes. things that they would do. Yeah. And, you yeah. know, so anyway. Yes, 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 yes. Michael Dunn. Yeah, he was a great, great actor. But that's where Richie beat me to it. I was going to put my cat up in the air, who's been going back and forth, making static. You don't have any choice. I'm, I'm assuming. Uh, yeah. Now he calls the shots. I'm, I'm just, I'm just here for his comfort. <laughs> you know, I'm going to steal, uh, steal a little bit of info from our, our contributor, and probably should be the host replacing me on this podcast, Jeff Coburn. He talked about how the opening shot. He picked up on this, how they do the, the tracking shot where things obstruct the camera. And he noticed that they're on the back wall. There's like cubby holes for mail. And that's, they just take that wall out. And when they're shooting the, and maybe I've noticed this and I didn't, but they just sort of track it and and it's going behind the, the cubby holes of the mail. And you see like the mail sort of sitting sideways in there and it'll sort of obstruct the camera for a moment. And that adds to the, the depth perception of the intro to culture. Look, there, there is a lot through a modern lens that, that we wish for, and we only wish for it be, because the glimpses we get of, you know, of the great stuff, McGavin's performance, his relationship with Vincenzo. Those are the two things I think that we have. And then secondarily, Miss Emily and Ron Updike. But it's it's just enough to make us wish for more. It's like, oh, if we could only a little bit more of this, a little bit more of that, uh, you know, just you know, if it had, if it had veered this way instead of that way. And we talked about this, Bradley, mm-hmm. when we were talking about horror in the Heights. And again, you just have to assume, well, maybe we got lucky because the director that week allowed for this or was interested in this, but there's a tone, especially in the first 15 minutes of that episode to McGavin's performance and his interrelationship with Vincenzo, where 
but he's kind of tired. And it's the scene where, where Vincenzo's like, what's this, this 20 bucks you gave somebody He's like, yeah, it's the, it's the old guy. I just, I gave him 20 bucks. He's, he needs it, you know? And Vincenzo's like, okay, okay, whatever. And it's very low key. They're not, it's not that typical, you know, Carl, you know, it's just the back and forth of two people who have been working together for years. It's a low key thing. And I'm like, well, this feels different. This like, I I would like to see more low key interaction between Vincenzo and Kolshak and not always have it be Vincenzo grabbing his ulcer. And, you know, it's like, that's fun, but it's like, ah, wow. That's a glimpse of what could have things that could have been. You know, I think you're on to something, Rich, too. And Robert's, one of Robert's favorite episodes, I think he actually might have this number one on his list, Chopper, has some of the best interplay. Like whenever, you know, Tony has, he's like, oh, I got to stay calm. I can't do all this. And then Carl's telling him about what happened. It seems for a moment, and even if maybe it is the, the you know, the stress, trying to not to be stressed. But he's like, you know, Carl, I think you're on to something here with, with this, you know, the bike rider and, and stuff. And then. And then when he gets to, oh, he has to have superhuman strength with a sword to cut him through. And he's like, no, I, I can't go along with that one now. You know, I, well, yeah, it's one of the most charming parts of the TV movie is it, it's the, I believe the penultimate scene. It's right before Kolshak goes and, and, and is sort of told to leave town and accused of murder. And it's almost like Vincenzo kind of knows it's coming. And and just before Kolshak walks out, he says, Kolshak, you're a hell of a reporter. Yeah. And it's like this rare moment of just professional to professional. It's like, I know we argue. No one's ever driven me more crazy than you. But you know what? I, I got I to gotta give you props. You know, you, you're a hell of a reporter. And, and moments like that mean so much because they're so rare. Maybe that's why I get so excited about them. If there were a lot of them, I wouldn't care. Yeah. But those are those are really really nice moments. You know, you, you mentioned that with Horror in the Heights, they they got this, they got that. They also got Jimmy Sangster, you know, which uh, yeah. is the only episode that was actually written by an actual horror writer who had horror credits and understood, you know, how important those things are when you're when we're dealing with the unreal, putting in some very real moments. Richard Matheson understood it. That's why those moments are in Night Stalker. And then, you know, Jimmy Sangster understood it, that, you know, you're, you're, you're taking a very unreal concept. And the way to make it seem real to the, to the viewer is to ground it in some realities. And those moments yeah. in Horror in the Heights, you know, that's why it is my favorite episode of, of the, the series. I think it's the best they ever did. I think it's the one all else others should be measured by. You know, I'm pretty much on the record as far as that one is concerned. But I think it, it does tell that, you know, the fact that they did get one episode by somebody who had, had not just some horror credits, but significant horror credits when uh, they got Jimmy Sangster to do that episode. So it, it, it just it does gleam. There's something very, very well, special about that episode, not the least of which is the idea of the monster, the idea of the Rakshasha taking the form of the person coming to you to kill you in the form of the person you trust the most. Well, that is just a damn good idea. That is just a real, you know, anybody who writes horror or writes about horror is going to stop and step back and go, you know, most horror ideas, even most of what Stephen King has done in his lifetime. And I love Stephen King. Most of what Stephen King has done has been derivative of what other people have done. Most horror is. 
you know, most horror is an iteration or a reiteration of what the the, the following basic tropes, mm. you know. So we're going to do the haunted house. We're going to do the scientist going where man should not go. We're going to do the vampire. We're going to do whatever. You know, you have certain things well, that you can you go around the barn on. And that's what most horror and, is. Um, and, and it's well, well, and what was cool about it was a couple of things. One, of course, an amazing concept. Then you take that concept and you're like, well, where where would this matter? It would matter within a community where where trust has a, a high premium and, and has life or death consequences for these people. And then and then and then just the clash of cultures and meeting sort of the future Kolshak from India. <laughs> Basically, yeah, yeah, like, like there, there had to be a moment where Kolshak looks at this guy and goes, "Is this me? Mm-hmm. Is this this is how this I die? Forty years? Is this how I get in I... my chips right here? Yeah, and I, I'm just I'm the guy who spends his entire life chasing down something that no one else knows about, believes, or cares about, and I die in the basement of some building in a city I don't know that is not my home. I, I mean, there, there's 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 a lot to sort of Chew on. There's a, if you'll pardon the pun, there's also another thing in this episode, which they don't really do in the other episodes where you really, even if it's just a page and a half, you get to know the people before they die. In the beginning, the, the guy who goes out to get the glasses, but especially the couple leaving the movie theater and talking about the movie. And you get, I mean, you get 50 years of a relationship in, in a minute. And then they come to a bad end. And you care about those people in a way that the other people who just get a little bit of Kolshak narration, you're like, oh, okay, they're just victim number three. Yep. Yeah. Great. And even coming full circle here, I mean, it seems like horror is the place where people can, where humanity confronts their problems, where horror is like, hey, we're going to bring our issues here and we're going to play them out on this, you know, in this genre. And then eventually, you know, you talk about the tropes, like the scientists going over places you know, people can't go and even that ends up circling around and it ends up in a show like say Titans, where you have somebody like Superboy who comes and is the mixture of, you know, the most superhero, you know, the biggest superhero and the biggest supervillain possible with project rock Shasha, which is also a nod there. I mean, it's all I, I totally stole that. I was really no. hoping there'd just be a flood of, of people on Twitter going rock Shasha. That's from Kolshak. Flatline. No one noticed it but you, Bradley. No, no, no. Uh, uh, except Robert, not Bradley. Oh, oh, Robert. 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 Yeah. Oh, oh, and you hadn't seen it yet, so he he couldn't know. Uh oh. Oh, hi there, Grave Secret. It goes right out at it. Uh Signed. It's signed, right? You can't see it, but it is signed. And there it is signed. Mm -hmm. Yeah. See, there we go. I got the first one. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> hey, nice. Yeah. nice, nice shot of uh, uh, of the crotch of Kolchak right there. I love it. <laughs> you know, an I'm episode they didn't do, by the way. The, the crotch, the crotch of, Kolchak. of Kolchak. <laughs> That was one of the cut ones. <laughs> that, that's that's actually my short story. <laughs> I'm gonna be submitting the crotch stalker. Yeah, I think yeah, that's right there with like Vampirus Lesbos is like the the horror ad, well, horror porn ad, well, adaptation. Well, okay. Okay. No, Rich, go well, ahead, man. How, you know, I mean, what, what, okay, what inspired so, you? How'd you get a hold of Mark? Well, I think it must have been that I was aware of, I mean, this book, the one that I just showed you, The Crotch of Kolchak. And I don't even know, I mean, how I became aware of this. I don't, I don't even know where I got the book. I mean, it was so 
early, I don't think it could have been online. I must have bought it in a store or come across it on some mailing list of some sort. But, but of course, you know, when you're, when your antenna's up for, you know, the Night Stalker, look, you know, after watching the original show, then you just, I was one of those kids. It was, you know, mid seventies. I got the TV guide every week. And so you would just go down, up and down the columns, looking for the stuff that I was looking for. I was looking for, are they showing the movie anywhere at any hour, any day of the week, every single week of the year, you would just scan up and down. When are they showing the movie or the night strangler? Um, I was also searching for Marx brothers movies cause that was my other <laughs> obsession. So, so I, I, I was searching a classic already. education. If there ever was one a man after Marx on hard, <laughs> That's all you need, right? And then, and that's when, then, then a couple of years later, I guess in '78, it was during one of these page by page scans that I discovered that um, the CBS late movie on Friday nights in LA at 11:30 was was rerunning the originals, and there and there were a bunch of episodes that I hadn't seen. I'd only seen maybe half or less of the original 20. So this was an opportunity to see the ones I'd only heard about, like Chopper, like Firefall, some of the later ones. So I would stay up. So I was in seventh grade. And on Friday nights, I got to stay up extra late because there was no school tomorrow. Thank God they showed them on Fridays. And, and catch up on those, on those episodes. And it, was, and it was in my effort to stay awake all the way to 1130 on a Friday night that I'm like, okay, well, what am I going to watch all night? And that's when I discovered the Rockford Files at nine. So I started, I would watch Rockford at nine. And then, and then I just had to get from 10 to 1130 anyway. But, but this was, this was my life. I, I was not, uh, I, I was not the, uh, you know, head of the, you know, football team or the baseball team or the anything. I, I was the kid who walked around the playground in a circle thinking about Bigfoot and UFOs and ghosts. So this was the only thing I had, and and it meant everything to me, and no one knew what the fuck I was talking about. However, as I got older, you just and got into, you know, and then my eventual career, a lot of people my age who were that same kid. So then you gotta say, well, why were all these kids obsessed with Coal Shack? And I think they were obsessed with the TV version of Coal Shack because that iteration of the character, which is slightly different than the TV movies, is is frankly even more adolescent and and kind of kind of textually adolescent. He is he is suspicious of romantic relationships. I mean, the episode where he's on the cruise ship, you know, he yeah. he could not be less interested in hooking up. <laughs> And it's sort of like for an adult, it's weird, but for a kid, you're like, oh, thank God, we don't have to sit through any of that romance kissing stuff. He's just going to go fight a werewolf. (laughs) No no one could turn his train around. Yeah. He doesn't drink. He doesn't smoke. Now he does in the TV movies and he's got, and and he's dating a hooker or whatever she is. But, but in the TV show, kids were safe. It's like, he's me. He's in trouble. No one believes him. And girls are gross. 
Let's go. He even goes to a bar in that one episode and doesn't order a drink. Like he just goes sits down at the bar. Yeah, the vampire episode, he 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 uh he has to order a hooker, but just just so that he can murder her. It's totally innocent. <laughs> she turns out to be a vampire. Yes, he's gonna yeah. have to kill her, but come on. He's not going to kiss her. Ew. You have more affinity. So here's the interesting thing. You So you have more affinity to the TV Kolchak. Whereas, you know, talking to Rodney, he he is all about the movie Kolchak. Like, that's his Kolchak. He didn't really watch the episodes. Well, yeah, I had to grow into the TV movie. The, yeah. The first TV. Look, by the second TV movie, it, it it's it's a it's a romantic comedy with Joanne Flug and Vincenzo in the backseat and everything and I'm kind of into that too. I'm like, oh, I'll watch. Why don't how about these three? You know, because it's just enough. It's just enough of there's a woman in his life, but mostly it's Vincenzo. You know, it's like maybe here's our balance. And then once we get to the TV show, it's just you know, I, I mean, again, and I love it, and I don't really need that much more from it, but. But it's a different character. It's yeah. an eight o'clock character. It's not a ten o'clock character. Love, love the, that little statement right there. So, Mark, what do you remember about talking to Rich back in the day? Do you remember your correspondence? Oh yeah, yeah. I, I still got it because I never throw any. I'm a <laughs> I, I, did, right. two, two two root guiding principles of my life are that uh, uh, a moving target is hard to hit and uh, pack rats never start. <laughs> so you know those two things have gotten me through through an awful lot and um i i hold on to everything i i i, I look at the, the, what's in back of me look at the, the, this this office in back of me. i love it you know, mark it's, it's, i i have i have an address for you on 13th street it's the same address it's it still works <laughs> <laughs> Oh i can't God, move this so office are you out of your mind you know i wouldn't be able to get out of here it's just, they're gonna bury me in here you know they're gonna oh, find me in here <laughs> okay so it was 1999 that's when you uh, autographed this book and which to me doesn't seem like that long ago it's no it doesn't me either rich no no yeah it's nibbling. but it's it's 23 years ago and back in that day we were writing each other letters and printing them out putting them in envelopes with stamps and mailing them mm-hmm. yep <laughs> and dinosaurs uh, i i you very quickly and i think the last exchanges were emails for us i think we eventually yeah. were we did exchange some things by email i lost all of my actual letter correspondences one by one you know th- that was the pattern of my life from 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 2000 on and going into around 2010, I only had two letter correspondence left. One was Hal Holbrook. Oh. And Hal eventually went to email. It broke my heart. It absolutely broke my heart the day that he discovered you could do this by email. You know, because he would always, late night after a show in a hotel, he'd type out and he had this wonderful, elegant stationery that he'd use. Oh, and I just, the first time I got an email from him, I went, this, this the universe has just crashed, you know. The and end then, of an era. But the last one I had him right to the end, 2015, was Jeff Rice. Jeff never owned a computer. So Jeff never learned how to use email. And all of our correspondence was always by mail. Or, or, or telephone. We talked on the phone a lot. Um, but I literally have 
hundreds of letters from Jeff. I've said Bradley and Robert have heard this before, but I literally have hundreds of letters from Jeff um, over the years. I've, I've just found a couple. And I, I just I just found one the other day. And I just opened it, I was reading it, and I could hear Jeff's voice coming through it. But the last line of the letter was just, God bless anybody named Dewitziak. Jeff. Yeah. And, oh my God. And the reason That's being so because you know he had so few friends left at the end. Yeah. He had so he so much appreciated loyalty. And the people who stood by him and everything, you know. So, you know, th- those letters, I know when I finally get into those letters, it's going to be tough. It's going to be, a, you know, I'm going to crack that steamer trunk in a few weeks when I get through with Poe and st- <clears throat> ch- start looking at the the, the new uh, Night Stalker edition. Um, you know, I, I, I think about this all the time. You know, I, I was such a big fan obviously there were many many others when we were kids and uh, of the night stalker and um no realistic way of expressing that and the people who wrote and worked on that show i'm sure david chase just felt like what the fuck am i doing i'm, I'm just this is uh, i am profaning any career i could possibly have as a writer <laughs> Just writing for television at that point was was a giant step down from feature films. I, by a miracle of the year of my birth, have been given the opportunity to write for television in a time when anyone who has seen a random episode of Grimm can tweet me and go, I loved your episode of Grimm and create the illusion that I have fans. <laughs> and. And so I get to go through my life, a a vibrant, rich correspondence with the people who are familiar with the various things I've done and and, and like the things I like, and I can talk to them and they can talk to me. And and there's much more of an acknowledgement that the people working in the industry now are are just fans who took it a step further and, and, and love television. There's no excuses. No one's like, well, you know, I mean, well, well, no, it's like, no. I love TV, wanted to be a TV writer. Now I'm a TV writer. Don't care about books. Don't care about movies. I love TV. And you can say that now. And I just, it, it, it breaks my heart that those people who toiled on those shows and probably thought, wow, I am really scraping the bottom of the barrel doing this Night Stalker thing. And those people, those directors and the other writers besides uh, David Chase have no idea, maybe had no idea the 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 lives they changed by doing that work you know um david chase you know who who fondly remembers his time on on, on night stalker i mean he, he remembers it as a hoot you know he certainly was caught in the crossfire between darren and cy shermack and then the the two armed camps that were set up on that show which made it so difficult for them to even do the 20 episodes but you know david he had a lot of laughs on that show. He kind of teamed with Michael Kozel, who was a young writer before he went on to co-create Hill Street Blues with Stephen Bochco. And so, you know, he and Kozel were kind of very close and were the bad boys of the writer's room in a lot of ways. And then, you know, Bob Zemeckis made his first sale, you know, with Chopper. It was his first, he and Bob Gale's first sale anywhere was, was made to Night Stalker. 
you know, so you, you did kind of have these, this kind of funky writers uh, mentality that sort of grew up in that, 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 that space. That has a lot to do with that. So when you're talking about the sort of juvenile aspects of Kolshak, a lot of that has to do with the fact that these writers kind of knew they were writing a kind of early seventies joke in what they were doing. And, you know, they introduced that and, and, and nobody likes a sophomoric joke more than David Chase does. It runs all through the Sopranos. He was never happier than when he could put some stupid joke into the mouth of one of those gangsters on the Sopranos. And, you know, one of his proudest moment was working the pie cost joke into to Ron Updike's mouth. <laughs> right. Okay. So, so a couple of things, but the first one is Mark, do you happen to know, because this is maybe my biggest question. Did did the Night Stalker have a a writer's room in the way we would understand it nowadays, where a group of people met every day and as a group broke episodes? Or was it simply people coming in and going, well, I'm going to do something about a UFO. It's like, okay, you go work on that. Bring me an outline. And it was more like one-on-one no. with either side. No, they, there, was, there was not a writer's room from that, st- that standpoint. They had more classic production meetings. And those were chaired by Cy Shermack after he replaced Paul Playden as the producer on the show. And David Chase was really the guy running, uh, working with the writers and working with the scripts. And most everything went through David's typewriter. He was pretty much the the, the, the story editor uh, on the show. So a lot of the sensibility which came out was David Chase. You know, he, he his name ends up on a lot of scripts. I think his name ends up on eight out of the 20 scripts Yeah, that they did. So you know, when, when you sort of say, you know, who was the writer's room, David Chase was sort of the primary person. Michael Kozel was probably the secondary uh, writer on it. And then they had guys like Stephen Lord, who was, was making a lot of contributions. But no, not the way you, we think of a writer's room today, where everybody sits around and, as you say, breaks out stories and then says, okay, you two guys take this, you know, episode three, this, you know, this is a great story. And you sort of bounce ideas back and forth. It was really a battle for survival. You know, Kolshak every week, it wasn't a battle for, you know, how are we going to do this great season? It was really, how are we going to get these episodes done? The production, this was a low budget operation. They had the lowest budget of any show on the Universal lot at the time. They were the lowest of the lows. And that's why nobody, that's why Bob Zemeckis made his first sale tonight to, you know, as Zemeckis told me in the book, he said, you know, we looked around the universal lot and said, we can't sell to Columbo. Everybody's trying to sell to Columbo. We can't sell to all these other shows, established writers. What's the, the show that's having the most trouble finding writers and stories? Night Stalker. <laughs> so that's how they sell yes. Chopper. Is, is they, they, they literally went after the one that they figured was on the bottom rung at, at, at the, the universal pecking order. And it was on the bottom rung of the universal pecking order. Was David Chase on from the very beginning? Yes. He's Chase was Chase was actually hired by Paul Playton. Uh, so he liked Paul. He Paul and, and David were very close. Who was Paul Playton? Who was he? He was the first. Uh, Paul had was a universal producer. He had worked on several shows at, at Universal. He was, you know, very well-liked guy, very smart. He and Darren did not get along right from the get-go. It was kind of mutual that I think Paul wanted out and Darren wanted him out. And then Cy, they, they, Cy at the time had a reputation of being able to get troubled shows back on track. 
you know, Side worked on a lot of shows. He'd worked on Ironside. He'd worked on Chips. He'd worked on a lot of Universal shows. He was one of their most trusted writer producers. So when Side took over, you know, Sai himself says, you know, he, or he did say, uh, we just lost him not too long ago. But Sai had said that, you know, he always considered Night Stalker his own failure because in his words, the studio wanted evolution and he gave them revolution because he could not work it out with Darren. He just could never, Darren wanted to be the executive producer on the show. He thought he was going to be. Yeah. What, what did that mean for Darren McGavin? What did he think that meant when he said, I want to be the executive producer? But did he think he, he thought was that was the deal? He felt double crossed. He, or did he just think, well, I, I, I just get to say no to. No, he thought that was the deal with Universal. He thought when he was going to be named, it would be done through his production company, Toreen Productions. And it would be a co-production between Universal and him and that he would have the executive producer's title. And then when it push came to shove, Universal had no intention on delivering on that. And therefore, he was committed to a series with an actual producer assigned by Universal. And Darren resented the hell out of that right from the start. And that started the warfare. It's hard for me to understand in in his mind. I'll get, well, an example: a show that premiered the exact same night as the Night Stalker, The Rockford Files. So James Garner's Cherokee Productions produced that show. Okay, and it was Universal Studios, but they produced the show. Now Garner never had an executive producer credit or any credit other than his acting credit, and he didn't write the scripts. He did not. Uh, he did not, as far as I know, and according to everything I've read, have a lot of like, I'm not doing that script. He, you know, Cannell would write the scripts and, you know, or, or David Chase or Juanita Bartlett, and then he would perform them. And, and he was only a producer in that he wanted to make sure the show didn't go over budget. And so I'm curious as to what, in other words, what did Darren McGavin want other than a title? that he wasn't getting did he what what was he not getting specifically in terms of executive producer i think darren would have liked to have and i don't know that this would have been good for the show by the way it certainly was not good for columbo when peter got more control and was (laughs) was was able to sort of call the shots on that that was not good he needed a strong writer producer somebody like levinson and link first and then dean hargrove and then richard allen simmons and whoever I'm not saying that the show would have been better, but Darren wanted his view of the show. He wanted to, to craft his view of the show. What Darren did not have control on, and there's now remember something. Darren acted like the executive producer for at least half of what the show was doing, which means on the set, Darren was boss. Darren was calling the shots on the set, which was, you know, could have been viewed as, as uh, you know, as mutiny, as you know, he, he was basically said, you know, I was promised executive producer. So in the world that I can control, I'm going to continue to be executive producer. So he acted like he was the executive producer on set. He had nothing to do with the production meetings, budget meetings, writing uh, the scripts. And he would have liked to have had control of the scripts, I know. Uh, but he had not, not, none of that control at all. He would gripe about them and he would complain about them and he would push and and puts his way along on everything as far as what he wanted in the scripts. But Cy ran out that part of it. And, you know, as they both said, Night Stalker turned into two armed camps. Darren calling the shots down on on the set and Cy calling the shots in the production office. I guess how they did 20 episodes is beyond me, quite (laughs) frankly. 
Yeah. Well, yeah, and I've I've dealt with actors who who who's it, it, typically it comes from insecurity. I don't know anything about Darren McGavin, mm-hmm. but but you know I, I I I question like on set when he was boss was he boss in terms of no nah, I don't want to come around that way I'm just going to enter over here. You he know, was or, the one uh, working with the directors. I don't want to do this scene. <laughs> Yeah, he was the one work. He was the one working with the actors. He would actually take actors aside. He was actually. I mean, these are the aspects of Darren that was very good. He particularly worked with the young actors. He would take, you know, uh, Jack Greninger or, or, or Carolyn Susie aside, and he would work with them on what they were doing. Carol Ann remembered one time, you know, Darren coming. She was having trouble with with one of the uh, with one of the scenes. And Darren said to Carolyn, come over here and run lines with me. I'm having trouble with it. He wasn't having trouble. He was doing her a favor to, 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 to help her out. You know, Darren was a lot of things. Darren could be the nicest guy in the world, and he could be, a you know, uh, a horse's ass, too. You know, and, and he wasn't all one thing. But, you know, but the number one thing that he was when he went into Night Starker was betrayed because he wouldn't have agreed to do the show. You know, he was Sid Sheinberg promised him that he could be the executive producer. That's how he agreed to do the show, you know, and when that did not turn out to be the case. And and this is not Cy Sherimak's fault. This is not Paul Playton's fault. This is not Darren McGavin's fault. This is Universal's fault. This all goes at the doorstep of Universal. They set up a terrible, terrible set of circumstances under which to do the show. And it was it probably doomed it before it even started, you know, because that was universal mismanagement, you know, yeah, it was innocent. Yeah. You know, so, so I, I have a question, Mark, since you, you've written books on both shows, a hallmark of Columbo were the guest stars. And in a weird way, a hallmark of Kolshak are the guest stars. Almost every episode is like, Oh my God, there's, there's a uh, Dick Van Patten. There's Jamie Farr. There's Mary Wicks. There's Jim Backus. There, you know, I mean, just like, Boom, 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 boom. Uh, were were those people under contract to Universal, or were they attracted because of McGavin, or why were why were these people showing up? Well, there's and there's crossover, by the way. There there are a lot of people who who appeared on both. James Gregory appeared on both. William Smith appeared on both shows. Mm. You know, Mary Wicks appeared on both shows. So uh, Larry Storch appeared on both shows. You have you know oh, this whole cool. yeah I know you have this whole uh, group of act, but they were just. It really speaks to that how rich an era that was in supporting players. You know, a lot yeah. of people we talk about the difference between the Columbos they made in the 1970s and the the Columbos they made for ABC in the 1990s, and what's the difference between why do the 90s ones not seem quite as good or quite as rich? And there are a lot of reasons for that, and not the least of which is again that Peter got too much power at the end. Another reason is you didn't have that richness in supporting players and guest stars that you had on episodes of almost every show. You know, you said Columbo and, and Night Stalker, but you could have said Rockford. You know, you could have said almost any universal show of that period and looked at the level of, you could have said McLeod for that matter and looked at the level of yeah. guest stars. They were, it, was a, it was a great era when you had a, a um, wide range of great guest stars to choose from of all ages and types. Yeah. And it gave a richness was- to the cast. Yeah. And it was great because like on Rockford, you could get Robert Weber every season 
just playing a different character. Right. right. <laughs> Again, it was that weird level of reality that you wouldn't do now. Like you would never do that. But then it's like, yeah, well, yeah, Robert Weber. Yeah, last season he played this guy. Now, now he's playing a whole different guy. And you just accepted it. You loved it. You know, and 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 again, we probably don't get the Sopranos if it's not for two shows. You know, one is Night Stalker because it sort of gives David Chase his start and his entree. But then David Chase, as soon as Night Stalker comes to an end, David Chase is rescued by none other than Stephen J. Cannell, who approaches him to come over and write for Rockford. And now David Chase really blossoms as a writer. He wins an Emmy for for writing for Rockford. And he's, you know, this is really the, the where where he comes into his own. And to this day, David Chase will tell you that, you know, he owed his career to Stephen Campbell. 